go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges. If you are going to use the pew Bible that's in your pew in front of you, you will find Judges chapter 2, where we'll start this morning, on page 201. Judges chapter 2, that's where we'll start, page 201. As we begin this morning, I wanted to read a letter an article written by one of our ABWE representatives. ABWE is a mission agency that several of our missionaries have uh, been sent under. And many missionaries have been ministering in the Ukraine since communism fell in the 90s and have since been relocated. But uh, there's an article, I ran across an article that was written by Miriam... Oh, I forget the first name. Miriam, get the right place here. Wheeler, medical missionary to the Ukraine. It's in an article entitled, The Ukraine Crisis Isn't New, But God Has Been There All Along. The subtitle, The War in Ukraine Has Expanded Since 2014, But So Has the Gospel. The article goes, as Russia conquered Crimea in a bloodless coup and provided arms for the separatists in Donbass, our ABWE team evacuated from the country amidst rumors of an invasion of Odessa, the major shipping port on the Black Sea. Upon our safe return to Ukraine a few weeks later, we provided medical care for the refugees who were fleeing the war zone in Donbass. We traveled to the free Ukrainian territory of northern Donbas and Kharkiv, doing daily clinics and churches throughout the area. Our churches welcomed them with open arms, feeding them, providing clothes and necessities, finding housing, being Jesus' hands. In these war-torn times, many were open to the gospel than had been in peacetime. My soul cried to God for wisdom and strength as scores of refugees would descend upon each church where we set up the clinic, opening their broken hearts and longingly looking to me for medical help. I'll never forget one lady in her early 60s. Let's call her Natalia. She came to my clinic several times with her grandson. Pastor Lanya, my primary ministry partner in Odessa, accompanied our clinic on every trip to share the good news of Jesus' salvation. He and I visited Natalia in her home one time and helped her ask Jesus to become her savior. Her husband had died before the war. Her daughter and son-in-law were both killed in the bombing of her village. And now Natalia had fled with her only grandson to a free town about 50 miles away with the only clothes on their back. She was so concerned about her grandson who was barely coping, but she was thankful for the support from the church youth group. Pastor Lanya showed her Google Earth on his tablet, which amazed her. She gazed longingly at Lanya and hesitantly asked, Can you see if my house is still standing? As tears filled her eyes, Lanya gently reminded her that she had a new home and a new destination. An amazing peace washed over her and wiped away the haunted look in her desperate eyes. God was now waiting to welcome her to heaven. I saw many people with similar stories over the next five years until the conflict settled down to a simmer before erupting again this year. Last month, when the latest invasion was announced, many Americans became aware of Ukraine who could not have previously pointed to it on a map. 
The only picture they saw of Ukraine and its Christians was of a church on the run fleeing their homes. But when I see the headlines, I think of people like Natalia and their joyful confidence in possessing an unfading eternal home. News cycles come and go, but God has been at work long in the country, long before this latest wave of conflict, and he has not abandoned his people there. May God continue to use missionaries and Ukrainian believers as Jesus' hands and feet to share his compassion with desperate survivors of this horrible war. Uh, there is another gentleman at ABWE named Alex Kochman who uh, is in, involved with communication a lot with the missionaries over there and the churches here on this side. And uh, he's been in contact with one of the missionaries who has been relocated to one of the border um, countries. And he echoes that churches are opening up their doors not only in western Ukraine for the refugees who are fleeing, but also in neighboring countries like Hungary and Poland and Romania. In fact, he said it's interesting, many Christians are running back into the danger to provide free transportation, food, and even temporary housing. They're not running from the danger. They're actually, the churches are becoming refugee centers, bomb shelters, providing refuge amidst the war, driving into dangerous places to help evacuate hospitals and even foreign students. His prayer is that the church would continue to be a light in the darkness of war. How is it that this church, in the midst of such pain and conflict and suffering and war, how is it they can have so much peace? How can they live under the constant threat of physical danger and not lose their minds? The Bible tells us, right? They know and worship Jesus Christ as the Lord is peace, the one who has reconciled them with his Father, so that they do not need to fear death in the following judgment and wrath of God. They know and worship Jesus Christ as their personal king, a good and benevolent king, who is also their deliverer, the one who has set them free from the power of sin and delivers them from the presence and pain of sin and its curse. They understand that this isn't just a book, but it's the very words of God with the very power of God to give life that is not only authoritative, but it is sufficient to guide them through every circumstance that they face. And the Holy Spirit empowers them to live it out. And they worship Jesus as the Lord of peace, for he's the reigning deliverer. It's hard to imagine trying to put yourself in their shoes, isn't it, this morning? What if our church was in Ukraine? What if our church was in one of those bordering countries in Poland or, or Russia or Romania right now? What would be the focus of our prayers the desires of our hearts? What would fill the thoughts of our mind? Would we pray to the Lord who is peace as they do? You know, more realistically, we're in a battle all the time, every day, aren't we? A different battle. Constantly surrounded by wickedness, corruption, godlessness, do you ever get tired of your heart's idle factory that seems to work three shifts a day? 
Ever want to get away from it all because life and everyone attached to your life seem to just provoke you to anger? Are you stuck in sin's muck and it just seems like you're spinning your tires? When we face circumstances like these, whether physical or spiritual, how often do we look for and pray for a change in our circumstances? Change on the things on the outside rather than asking the Lord to squeeze our hearts like a sponge so we can see what's inside of that heart so we can repent of all the sin that resides in every corner. That's hard. But that's where the real battle is for us, isn't it? Do we pray for better government, better employer, perfect kids? Or do we pray that God would use our present circumstances to instead grow our hatred for sin and grow a love for his righteousness? Well, today we're going to look at just one story in the book of Judges that shows us how God uses life's hard circumstances in the life of his people to do that very thing, to squeeze their hearts, to show them the idols that they are struggling with, to show them how they have begun to worship something other than him and begun to live independently of him, that they might worship and obey him as the Lord is peace and the reigning deliverer. So we're gonna begin in Judges chapter two this morning to kind of lead up to our text in chapter six because we see in the book of Judges a cyclical pattern. It's like the same story over and over and over again. You have sin, there's oppression because of the sin. There is a sorrow in their circumstances, turning to God, crying for deliverance. God sends the deliverer, and there's a period of peace. At least there is in the first half of the book until we get to chapter 9. And that cycle goes over and over and over again. But why this cycle? Why does the cycle sin, oppression, deliverance, peace, sin, oppression, sorrow, deliverance, peace, over and over again. Well, to understand the book of Judges, we have to go back to the book of Deuteronomy and understand something that was told to the children of Israel as part of the covenant as they were getting ready to go into the promised land. Moses, before, before the Lord took his life and the children of Israel went to the promised land, he preaches a sermon on the covenant in the book of Deuteronomy. And we come to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 to 15. Moses says this, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. So here's what Moses is saying. If you cling to the gods surrounding you, then God would bring curses upon them, including famine, devastation, invasion, oppression, and eventually captivity and dispersion. He will lay out those curses 
in Deuteronomy 28 to 30, the curses and blessings. When you forget me, when you begin to worship these gods of the nations around you, and you fail to worship and love me with all your heart, soul, and might, here are the curses that you can expect. What's interesting with those list of curses, after each level or series of curses, there's a little insertion. If these curses come upon you, and you remember the God who delivered you from Egypt and gave you all this land, and you turn from your sins and repent and worship him again, he will restore you. So when did this cycle begin? Did it begin right away? Well, as we go into the book of Joshua, so Moses preaches Deuteronomy to the children of Israel, Moses passes away. Joshua takes over leadership of the children of Israel. Joshua takes them into the promised land and conquers it. And at the end of the book of Joshua, in chapter 24, Joshua then gives a challenge to the children of Israel, to the 12 tribes, as he says, here's your plot of land, this is your tribe's land, this is your tribe's land. Now go and finish the job of dispossessing the people and conquering the land. And in the midst of this challenge, he says this. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Notice what he says next. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, wait a minute. In order to put away the gods, what must be true? They already had them. We're not that far removed. This nation is less than 100 years old. And they've already forgotten the God who set them free from slavery in Egypt. So what would happen after Joshua dies? Well, this is where we pick up in Judges chapter 2. Joshua passes off the scene and another leader is not appointed. So we come to jo or, excuse me, Judges chapter 2 and we come to verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and notice the next sentence. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. One of the instructions that Moses had given back in Deuteronomy chapter 6 was not only that the children of Israel would remember the covenant, but that it would be such at the forefront of their minds, he said, as to be written on your forehead, on the back of your hands, on the gates of your house, Wherever you are going, whatever you are doing, teach these things to the next generation so that when you enter the land, you won't forget. They failed. They forgot. They didn't teach the next generation. And as a result, a generation arose that did not know the Lord. So what did they do? Well, look at verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. 
and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth so that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could not, no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. This was not to be a surprise. It's exactly what God had laid out in the book of Deuteronomy for them that Moses instructed and wrote down for them. This is what's going to happen if you forsake the Lord. What are the words used to describe Israel? They did evil. They abandoned the Lord. They went after other gods. They provoked the Lord. And instead, they served Baal and Ashtoreth. What was the Lord's response? His anger was kindled. He gave them over. His hand was against them. He sold them out to the other nations. The end of the book of Judges will summarize this book with this phrase. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds like life in the days of Noah, doesn't it? We haven't gotten very far. What's the problem? And so we trace the sin cycle of sin, oppression, sorrow, deliverance throughout the rest of this book. Mind you, what's interesting about the sorrowing, it's not godly sorrow that leads to repentance. It's just crying out, God, change our circumstances. So look at Judges 3, 7. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, served the Baals and Ashtoreth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled. And on we go. Towards the end of verse 10, you had a judge. It was actually um, Othniel, who was a, a nephew of Caleb. You remember Caleb? Give me this mountain. One of the spies that went into the promised land. Othniel came from good stock. Verse 11. They had rest for 40 years. But, go on to verse 12. The people of Israel again did what was evil inside the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. Do you see what's happening? Sin. God strengthens a pagan king to come in, oppress him. They cry out. God sends a deliverer. Boys, little boys, you'll like that story, by the way. You'll want to come back and read that one. We're not going to spend time on Ehud and Eglon, but... Uh, all you boys out there, I'm sure, will enjoy that story. I know I did as a kid. Go into chapter 4, verse 1. After rest for 80 years, people again did what was evil inside the Lord after Ehud died, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. And we go on into chapter 6 now. So where we'll spend the bulk of our time in chapter 6 through 8. Chapter 6. We read again, after 40 years of rest, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. The hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza. They leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. 
For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. The people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. Wait a minute. That's different. He sent a prophet. What was the job of a prophet? To tell God's word to the people and call his people to repentance. It's interesting, when we get to this story, some things change in the cycle a little bit. And when you see those things, that should raise your attention and say, hello, something's different about this story. I need to pay attention. In fact, if you were to take a step back away from the book of Judges and were to chart the judges out, you would see a a parallel between the judges at the beginning of the book and the judges at the end of the book. In fact, there's a contrast. And you know where the book focuses your attention? You want to guess? Chapters 6 through 8. On two judges, the ideal judge and the ideal not judge. (laughs) Gideon and his son Abimelech. And so as we come to this book, and this is why I've selected this particular narrative today, because we can, we can cover basically the message of the book as we look at this narrative. And in Judges 6, we're going to see that what God is doing is he's calling his people to worship and obey him as the Lord of peace, who is their reigning deliverer. There's something different here. He, he doesn't just send them a prophet. Or he doesn't send them a, a deliverer, a judge. Instead, he sends them a prophet this time first. There was something that was going on that was more than, than just the oppression. There was a bigger problem. What is Israel's problem? It's not the famine. It's not the pestilence. It's not the poverty. It's not the oppression of a weaker by a stronger. It's not war. Did they need a better leader? I mean, they've had three judges now. Maybe they just need a better leader. Well, we're going to see how that works out for them with Gideon. No, if we go back to Deuteronomy again, we know the rest of the story. Moses already gave us a clue. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, at the end of Moses' sermon, as he's wrapping it up and giving a conclusion, he says this. You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his servants, and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Deuteronomy 30, he goes on. When all these things come upon you, what were all those things? All the curses. Notice he didn't say if. (laughs) He said, when all these curses come on you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call to the mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. 
Moses says, there's one thing you don't have. You don't have a circumcised heart. Your heart's the problem. And so as we work through the rest of the Old Testament, you know what we see? It doesn't matter what leader they have. It doesn't matter what circumstances they have. They're full of heart problems. So that we get to the prophets, there's another promise that comes. Ah, a day is coming when the Spirit will be given to you and he will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and he will write his law on your heart so that you can do it, so you can live it. So really, judges should be no surprise because their problem was a worship problem. And God calls attention to it with this particular narrative in Judges 6 by saying, I'm going to send you a prophet first. Now, what does the prophet say? We continue reading. Thus says the Lord, verse 8. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Did you see what the prophet did? He just connected a big dot between Deuteronomy and Judges, didn't he? It's exactly what, what uh, Moses was talking about. That's exactly what Joshua was talking about. He just connected all those books and said, listen, I already told you this. Go back to the book of the covenant. It's all there. You have a heart problem. You need to turn from your sin. He also reminded them about who is the Lord. I've said this before, but as you read through this text, notice how many times the name of the Lord shows up and notice how it's spelled. It's in small caps. What is significant about that smell, smelling, spelling of the name of the Lord? This is the God of the covenant. In a few weeks, actually, Lord willing, next week we'll start the book of Exodus, and in a few weeks into that, you're going to be introduced to Yahweh, this Lord, the God of the covenant, when he confronts Moses in the wilderness of the burning bush. The prophet comes and said, this is Yahweh. He's your God. He's the one that came to Moses and brought Moses and had Moses come and lead you out of slavery. He is the one that caused all those troubles in Pharaoh. He's the one that was with Joshua to help Joshua conquer the land. He is the one that's given you this land. And yet you've forsaken him and have not obeyed his voice. Now notice, as you go through the rest of the text, how many times the name of the Lord pops up. We continue on in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, a mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go, and did you see what happened there, by the way? Verse 11, now the 
angel of the Lord came. Verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said. <laughs> Let's pause for a minute. What did Gideon just accuse the Lord of doing? Forsaking Israel. Who was talking to him? The Lord. <laughs> if he only knew. The Lord said, verse 14, Go in this mind of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And Gideon said to him, Please, Lord. Notice the change in spelling. He does not realize who he's talking to. How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. He said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from Nepha flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes, put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and he touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. And to this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizrites. Wow. The Lord showed up. This is another different thing in the book of Judges. First of all, you have a prophet that comes and says, repent, turn back to the Lord. Now you have the angel of the Lord, who is the Lord, shows up and is the one that's doing the calling and commissioning of Gideon to be the next judge. Once again, this is going to smack, this is going to reflect back to the calling of Moses. You're going to see a lot of similarities. The fire of the Lord is present. You have Joshua, or excuse me, Gideon here who is saying, who am I? I'm weak. I, I can't do this thing you've called me to do. And what does the Lord promise? I will be with you. I am promising I will be with you. I will send you, and if I send you, I will take you, and I will accomplish that which I send you to do. So what does he do? He says, okay, I'm gonna figure out, I'm gonna figure out who this is. Is this just a prophet? Is this an angel? Who is this that's talking to me? So I'm going to come out, I'm gonna serve them, I'm gonna be hospitable, I'm gonna bring a meal out here. Now to keep in mind, what are the Midianites doing as they go into the land? They're, they're destroying all the crops. Where is Gideon when the angel of the Lord comes to him? He's in a wine press threshing his wheat. Well, they're supposed to do that in an open area so the wind would carry the chaff away. What's he doing in a wine press? Well, if the Midianites see that he has grain, what were they going to do? They're going to take it. He's trying to feed his family. He's not, he's not leaving it to his, his servants to do this job. He's doing it himself. He's feeding his family. And yet in this moment, he takes what little grain, he, what meat he has. It's just a goat. It's not a bull. He provides a little meal. He brings it out. 
it sits it on the rock. And I don't know when you first get the idea that this is something more than just a prophet or an angel. When all of a sudden he says, take the food out of the basket, put it on the rock and pour the broth over it, right? He's like, well, I've seen stuff like this before in the Bible, right? And then he touches it with his staff and the fire consumes it. Imagine Gideon's in the same shoes as Isaiah when he's standing before the Lord. He's like, woe is me. I just accused the Lord of forsaking me. And I was standing in his presence. That is what's so reassuring when God comes back to him in verse 23 and says, peace, you're not going to die. Isn't that beautiful? What happened here? Well, before God could use Gideon, God had to restore his deliverer to a right relationship with him. He's coming in this, this narrative. He says, Israel, you've got a heart problem. I'm going to send you a prophet. I'm going to get a deliverer, but I'm going to deal a little differently with this deliverer. Deliverer, you've got a heart problem. You're living life on your own. I am the Lord. I have not forsaken you. I'm trying to get your attention. And Gideon got it. His wrong thinking was corrected and the Lord gives him pardon. And so what does he do? The way a lot of the Old Testament patriarchs did, right? They would take that stone where something magnificent happened in relationship with God. They set it up on end and they gave it a name as a memorial, as a standing stone for future generations that this is Yahweh. And what was this one? Yahweh is peace. What's happening in Israel? War, devastation, oppression. And yet in that moment, Gideon sees that his God is a God of peace because what he deserved was destruction. The wrath of God. And yet he was given a pardon. And so Gideon is now prepared to listen to the instructions of the Lord. And the Lord gives him instructions to what happened in his life of being restored to a right relationship with God, of worshiping and obeying the Lord as peace as the reigning deliverer. Now he's going to lead the nation of Israel, starting with his family. Let's pick up the story in verse 25. That night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull, and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has. Cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten, took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town, to do it by day, he did it by night. Now, you might think, whoa, he was a, he's a wimp. He's doing it at night. Guys, he still did it, right? And he took 10 servants with him. This is no small thing. His right thinking about the Lord now gives him the courage to go and do what God has commanded him to do. He's recognized that the Lord is the one who's the real deliverer. He's a little fearful of man, 
But God is still working with him. Now we see the nature of the hearts of Israel in the response to his family when they get up the next morning. Where they said, oh, look, someone's helping us follow the, well, the words of the prophet. No, they did not. Look at verse 28. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the asher beside it was cut down, and the second bowl was offered on, that, on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? After they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was given a new nickname, Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abizrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, that's his tribe by the way, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, to Zebulun, to Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. I'm going to stop again for a moment here. So here they are. They wake up. They see what he has done. He's torn down these altars. They're upset. Baal was the god of thunder, the god of war. They would look to him for the one who would provide security, sustenance. Asherah was the one that they would go to, that they would have large families, that the land would be productive. And so when he tore down those two gods, he was making a statement. Listen, these gods aren't the problem, or excuse me, these gods aren't what gives us provision and security. They're the problem. Yahweh is the one who has given us this land. Yahweh is the one who delivered us from Egypt. Yahweh is the one we should be worshiping instead. And God works in this to move, and just as the Lord had promised to Gideon, he said, I will fight your battles for you, so you see that happening. His father steps in and says, if, if Baal is a god, let him contend for himself. And when, when Gideon goes and he summons all of his family to come together, do they still try to kill him? No, they come. They gather. This isn't Gideon. The Lord's bringing them together. While they're busy fighting about these idols, what's happening to the Midianites and the Malachites? They're crossing the river. They're setting up camp. They're getting ready to come in and ravage the land. And then there's another really interesting note that's added in this narrative as well in verse 34. The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. Remember, the Holy Spirit didn't fill all the people of God in these days. This is a special anointing of the Spirit that would give Gideon the power to do exactly what God had called him to do. And God is doing exactly what the Lord had promised to Gideon. As we go on through the story, a lot of times we focus on the next part of the sign of the fleece in 36 to 40. A lot of folks love to read that story and say, oh, this is what I'm going to do when I, when I make a decision. I'm going to lay out a fleece and God will guide me. 
This is not here to help us know how to make decisions. In fact, there's a total of three signs just in these first few chapters about Gideon. The offering was a sign. The fleece is a sign. And we're going to see another one here in a little bit about a dream. The Lord, remember, Gideon didn't have a copy of the word to read, did he? We have God's word. God's word claims to give us all the wisdom we need for making decisions. This is not something we lay out a sign and say, God, you know, I need, I need some reassurance here as to whether or not this is the right thing to do. God says, check my book. I've laid it out. I've given you principles of wisdom, of morality. I've given you other Christians who seek to live a godly life. Walk together in that. I've given you what is sufficient. That is the claim of his word. So Gideon comes, he lays out this fleece. God is gracious with him. He works through it. He reassures Gideon. We get to chapter seven. And as we get to chapter seven, all these people have, been, have come together, a total of 32,000. And what does the Lord say in verse two? The people with you are too many. Why? Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So the Lord says this, now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Now, once again, this flows right out of the book of Deuteronomy and the laws of warfare. That was what they were supposed to do. The, the priest was supposed to come and, and preach to them and pray with them, have sacrifice. And then the, the leader of the military was supposed to come and say, hey, any of you afraid to go into battle today? Go on home. <laughs> Why? So their fear wouldn't spread to everybody else. Notice how many people went home. 22,000. We're down to 10,000. So the Lord gave more instructions. Verse 6, people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you and shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. And what does Gideon do? He follows the Lord's instructions. Verse 7, the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every one to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. He sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. Now stop. Notice how many times the Lord said, Gideon does. The Lord says, Gideon does. The Lord says, Gideon does. Gideon's got it. Whatever the Lord says, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm not going to do anything until he tells me to do it. God continues to work with him. Verse 10. If you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with uh, Pura, your servant. You shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So then they, he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp, and the Midianites and the Malachites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. Their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. He said, behold, I dreamed a dream. Behold, a, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. 
His comrade answered, well, this is no other than the sword of Gideon to the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Now notice Gideon's response in verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, what did he do? He worshiped. The Lord says he does. The Lord says he does. The Lord says he does. What did the Lord say? I have given him into your hands already. Not will. It's a done thing, Gideon. If you're a little afraid, go on down. I have another sign for you. Wow, God, you're great. You have given them into my hand already. They're afraid. And he worships God. He goes back up, gathers his folks together. He says, arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. <laughs> you see, it's like a parent to a child, right? Look at me. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy. Look at me and do exactly as I say because the Lord told me to do this, okay? So what does he say? He says, um, I lost my place with that. Uh, verse 17, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch where they just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets, smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies, uh, the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp. And all the army ran. <laughs> they cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshittah towards Zareth, as far as the border of Abel, Meholah, whoa, this is a lot of words here, right? By Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out of Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Do you notice what happened just there? 300 men went to battle. 300 men broke a pot, held a torch, and blew a trumpet and yelled. And what happened to the enemy? They killed themselves and ran. And then did you hear what happened after that? Those 22,000 that went home because they were afraid? Oh, look, the Midianites are running. They all joined the battle and they pursue them and kick them out of the land. Amazing story, right? Makes for good children's literature and stories. But what's the point? Who fought the battle? Was it the sword of Gideon? It was God's. The Lord fought the battle, and he fought the battle with the Midianite swords. Well, I wish that's where the story ended. It's amazing. There's a temptation to think, maybe Gideon is the ideal deliverer. This is the guy we've been looking for. Well, we go on to chapter 8, verse 22. And this is exactly what Israel is thinking. Ha! The answer to our problems. So the men of Israel said to Gideon, verse 22, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. 
And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now stop, don't read any further. Just stop there. <laughs> Just for a moment. I'm not the ruler. I wasn't the one that fought this battle. It's Yahweh. You need to worship and obey the Lord is peace, for he is the reigning deliverer, not me. They were looking for a political king. They were looking for someone who would set them in order, a military leader. But that's not what they needed. They needed a spiritual deliverer. They need someone that would lead them in repentance. But they weren't the only ones. For the story goes on in verse 24. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. Oh, does this sound familiar from a story from the book of Exodus? For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak. Every man threw it in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. Besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon. And to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. He named his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father at Ophrah, and the Abizrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals, made Baal Bareth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Do you see what happened? Gideon was better than the other judges, but he's not the best. He's presented as the better deliverer in the book of Judges because he repented of Baal worship and he led his family to repent of Baal worship. Gideon is presented as the better deliverer because he followed the word of the Lord as peace. Gideon is presented as the better deliverer because he, is not, he not only went after the physical problem, but he also sought to restore worship to Yahweh. Gideon was the better deliverer because he was clothed with the spirit of the Lord. However, he is not the perfect final deliverer, nor the reigning deliverer because he could not fix their heart problem because he had a heart problem still. If you go back through the text, there's at least nine different things that pop up in the text along the way that illustrate this. Well, first of all, in chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, what does he realize when he stands in the presence of God? I am a sinner. I am deserving of God's wrath. So he can't be the final deliverer. Because that's what we were promised in Genesis 3.15, right? That one day a seed of the woman was going to come. And what was he going to do? He's going to crush Satan's rule in this world. He was going to save us from our sins and from the curse and from death. Gideon's not the one. Notice in chapter 7, verses 18 and 20. 
little battle charge, right? For the Lord and Gideon. Just a slight addition. It's interesting, Gideon's sword doesn't show up until later, chapter 8. We didn't even read that passage. There's a glaring absence in the rest of chapter 8 of the Lord said and Gideon did. And you know what Gideon was doing in chapter 8? He was seeking vengeance on some of the, the leaders, the other military, who had killed his brothers. Vengeful killing. He makes this memorial. Now, there are several times that God tells Israel to make memorials. The Lord didn't tell him to in this point, but here's the other thing. What happened to it? It became a snare to him. What did he do to it when it became a snare to him and to his family? Did he tear it down? No. He had many wives and concubines. God had said that his leaders... Deuteronomy 17, we're not to multiply wives. He was not complying with the law of the covenant. And then, if you have a study Bible, you'll see a little note next to the name of his son by the concubine, Abimelech. If you follow a little superscript down to your study notes, what does it say Abimelech means? My father is king. Well, that sounds strange. I thought he turned that down. And then in chapter 8, verse 33, what happened to Gideon in the end? He died. And the cycle of sin continued unhindered. Gideon may have been an ideal deliverer in the book of Judges, but he's not the final deliverer. In fact, at the end of the book, along with everyone did what was right in his own eyes, there's this little phrase attached, there was no king in Israel. Gideon couldn't give him the spirit either. To open their blind eyes, to take out their heart of stone, to give them a heart of flesh, to write the law of God on their hearts so they would live in righteousness. And so as we keep reading through the book of history, the historical books in the, in the Old Testament, what do you see? It doesn't matter if God gives them a king. The best king is a sinner. The prophets, the priests, they're all sinners. We get to the end of the Old Testament and they've just been restored to the land after being dispersed. And right away, what do they begin doing? They begin marrying, intermarrying with the foreign nations who are worshiping other gods. And God goes silent for 400 years. But then in the book of Luke, chapter 1, another angel comes and visits another father. This time it's Zechariah, the father of John the baptizer. And in Luke 1, 68 to 79, we read, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in this house of his servant David, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Not 
peace in this world, but a peace with God that lasts beyond this world. And so we get to Luke chapter 10, on the night that Jesus of birth, and the angels come to the shepherds, and what do they announce? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. That's what we're looking for. That's what we need. We don't need just a physical deliverer. We need a spiritual deliverer. And the angel said, he's here. How is Jesus the perfect deliverer? In Colossians 1, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. For those who are alienated and hostile mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Folks, we have a worship problem. We are called to worship and obey the Lord as peace for he is our reigning deliverer and it's only through the Lord Jesus Christ's perfect life, his substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection, his present glorification, and his giving of his spirit to us today that we can understand God's word, that as we read God's word, it can change our hearts to circumcise them the Holy Spirit writes his law in our hearts and he changes the way we look at life. And so we no longer look for being appeased from the physical life, but rather in the midst of the circumstances of this life, we are constantly reminded it's not about this life. I came that you might have peace with me. Worship me, I'm your deliverer. Yes, I'm going to bring an end to all this death and destruction that we see in the world, but I've given you a job. I've reconciled you so that you can turn and be a minister of reconciliation to those around you. And I've given you the word, the message of reconciliation to do it. Why is there evil in the world around us today? Romans 1 says it's because God has given them up to their sins. We're going to continue seeing such things. Romans 1 is very clear. Hearts are darkened. Men claimed to be wise, and in so doing, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping images. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. But he hasn't left us without hope. Romans 1 says, For I am not ashamed for the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. So why doesn't God bring an end to all this suffering? We're not the first ones to ask that question. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3, the reason why God hasn't brought an end to this, just as in the days of Noah, 120 years, Noah saying a flood is coming, repent. How many people joined him in the ark? Just his family. And in like fashion, Peter draws our attention in 2 Peter 3 and says, the Lord is not slow concerning his promise, but he's patient, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. A day is coming when deliverance from sin and oppression will end. So what do I do today? Well, first of all, there's two responses. One is, have you trusted in Jesus as your 
personal Lord of peace and reigning deliverer. Have you come to the point where Gideon did, where he realizes it's not about a physical problem I'm facing? I am in sin, and one day I'm going to stand before God Almighty, and I'm going to be deserving of his wrath and his judgment and his destruction in that day, and I can't fight that battle. Have you come to the point, as you realize your sinful condition, that your only hope for a change and for resurrection, for, for salvation, is in the Lord? That Jesus lived your life in your place, took your punishment for you in your place, and through his shed blood, through his crushed flesh, he willingly became your sacrifice. And when he rose again, he offers to you new life. Is he your personal deliverer? Is it your desire and prayer that the Lord Jesus Christ would be the king over all you think, everything you want, and everything you do? He's waiting. That's why there's still evil in this world. Because there's still those who haven't repented. But those of you who are a child of God, he has commissioned us to do spiritual battle, to be ministers of peace. You heard this story from the Ukrainian church. They get it, don't they? You know what their prayer is? That they would be faithful to share light in the darkness because people are sensitive to the gospel right now. Oh, that would be our prayer. No matter what's going on around us, that we would realize God has called us out by grace and because he did so, we have a job of leading others to experience that same grace. And in, in our daily living, walking it out and, and walking in repentance. Even in a day and age when everyone seems to be doing what is right in his own eyes, the Lord of peace is still the reigning deliverer. And he's using all of these things to bring glory to himself and righteous fruit in his children. And so in closing today, I want to read another letter. A letter from another one of God's servants, the Apostle Paul. Written to a church who was experiencing a tough time. And Paul wanted to encourage them to be faithful, to live out the gospel in the light of their circumstances. And he wrote this in Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We regard as sheep to be slaughtered. 
know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for these reassuring words that as things shake around us, we see the oppression and the wickedness that's ever-present, Lord, I pray that you would drive it to our hearts, that that outside pressures would squeeze our hearts, that we'd see the real heart problem, the sin that still remains in each of us, and that daily we would be walking in repentance, worshiping and obeying you as the Lord who's made peace between you and us, and that you are to be our reigning deliverer today. And we pray, Lord, that you'd be honored and glorified through the lives we live. Make us faithful stewards of your word of reconciliation, that we, would, that we would share this great gift of grace with all those we come into contact, that they too may worship and obey you as the eternal deliverer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.